But the title of my message today is God's Lawsuit and His Divine Counsel. Now this is probably, uh, this is not me patting myself on the back, this is probably going to be the strangest message you've ever heard in your entire life. I want you to buckle up, and I know we've got guests here today, and I've been warned. But it's, here's what I always tell us, and you should know this by now. The weird stuff in the Bible is not meant for you to skip. If it seems weird, you should bite down and figure out what is this. So today what I want to do as we get into Revelation is help you understand a genre, a style of writing from the Old Testament, which has been called by scholars either divine lawsuit, prophetic lawsuit, or God's lawsuit. You can find whole books. Have you ever heard somebody on the platform talk about the offering and say Malachi chapter 3? For you have robbed God of the tithes and the offering. Right? Okay. The entire book of Malachi is set up like God is exercising a lawsuit against his people for the wrong that they've done. So what I want to do is explain to you what you've already read in chapter 2 and 3 and what we'll look at over the next several weeks in chapters 4 and 5 actually constitute what the scholars believe is God's lawsuit, that style of delivery. And you've just heard me. He says, you have done this against me. You have not done what you should have done. So he levels the charge, and then he says, there's room for you to come back. There's room for you to be forgiven, repent, and we'll cancel those charges, and you'll get a reward if you do this, but if you don't, something worse is coming. So this is how this whole section of Scripture, Revelation 2 through 5, is uh, modeled after the Old Testament style known as a divine lawsuit. What it is, is it's God as judge, as prosecutor, and jury in bringing an indictment against his people for them violating his covenant. So you'll be familiar, you'll remember as we go through some of this today, that you've heard some of this language before. But God says, starting from the days of Abraham... I will, in general terms, that covenant word is a big word, and sometimes we think it's, you know, too complicated. Here's what it is. It's a conditional promise. So God says, I promise you this, you promise me this, and let's walk together. That's the same exact thing that we do. We make a covenant in our marriage relationship. We say, you are mine, you're only mine, I am yours, and I'm only yours. Now, God has done that with his people from the very beginning, but every once in a while, they go a little off the rails, and they break away, and they start marrying unbelievers, and they start going down paths they shouldn't. They start putting up false idols in the house of God, and he draws their attention and gets a prophet to wake up and says, you better come back to me or else. So he's done that all the way throughout their history. He's still doing it today. If you're a believer, he's at some point convicted your heart of the fact that you've broken his commandments, his instructions, and he's offered you love, hope, forgiveness. 
So this is incredible when you think about it and how it plays into Revelation. But these lawsuit scenes that we're going to look at today are presented in a heavenly courtroom, in the throne room of God. And they also involve members of what is known as God's divine council. This may be a term that you've never heard before, but there's scriptural evidence multiple places. This is not one weird one-off. There is all throughout scripture this same pattern that keeps showing up with the covenant violations and the lawsuit image for the people of God and then members of God's divine council who bear witness of the indictment that God is saying, y'all look, my people have done me wrong. We need to fix this. They even participate, the divine council participates in deliberations about what to do. And you say, I've never heard of this, pastor. I'm going to show you in God's word. And here's what I want to do today. A, I don't want to talk about something weird just because it's weird. I want to spark your interest to become a student of God's word. You've read some of the stuff that we're about to read today and you've never seen it until you see it today. And then you're going to be like, huh. And I know your brain is going to explode with a hundred questions at the end of this. I'll answer four of them before we close the message. But I want you to understand that this is important. It was important in the minds of the writers of the Old Testament. Important in the minds of the New Testament. And there's a significance for us even now today. So Revelation 4 and 5 take place in God's heavenly throne room, and they follow this pattern. I want to show you on the screen what the pattern of the lawsuit is. Um, I guess this is probably uncouth, you would say, or not proper, but has anybody here ever been in a courtroom? Just raise your hand. Okay. I don't need to know why. I was going to say, has anybody ever been in a lawsuit? I don't want to know. Um, I don't know if you've been to jail. I don't care about those things, but you've been in a courtroom. I was in the courtroom. I, maybe I've told this story, but I'll tell you real fast. I was in the courtroom here in, in Glendale. <clears throat> I, I had to show up. Uh, some jerk. No, I'm just kidding. Let me stop. Let me stop. Some authority figure that God placed in my path stopped me. And, um, and caused me to have to come in and see him and see a judge. And so I did. Well, I'm sitting in a corner and I'm like playing on my phone, like head down like this, hoping nobody sees me because I pastor a church here in Clinton and they're going to be like, Hey pastor. And I'm going to be like, Oh my gosh. Sure enough, my name gets called and someone whips their head around like they got whiplash and sees me, they're no longer here, they don't live in the area, and they said, Pastor Dexter! And I went, oh my God, it happened. (laughs) Just what I hoped would not happen. So if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know it's a stressful situation. It's a high pressure, okay? I don't know if you've been in a lawsuit. I haven't, but I've been a witness and testified in lawsuits before. And this is the the structure of the divine lawsuit. There's an introduction that happens, Then there's some interrogation. Hey, anybody remember Job? Do you remember God saying to him, were you there when I formed the earth? This is the interrogation that happens. He says, he gives them some questions to reveal the truth. In fact, same thing happened in Genesis 
in the garden. He knew the answer, but he was getting them to assert the truth themselves, to own up to it. Then there's a prosecution that happens, a prosecution speech. And then there's an indictment, the charge that's against them, and then a judgment, either with a good result or a bad result. You can have the judge rule in your favor, or you can have him rule against you. So this is the pattern that happens in Scripture. And you can take a picture of this next slide, because this is all the weird places that you can look in the Bible to find these things. This is a handful of them. There's probably 14, but this is six or seven that I I think are cool and important and would be great to read. Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 50, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 10, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 12, Micah chapter 6, the entire book of Malachi. Okay, This is God taking that divine lawsuit and saying, wait a second, you've done wrong. Now this is the charge. What are you going to do about it? Look at what Micah chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 say. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. He's talking to his people. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will war or contend with Israel. A great example would be the book of Malachi. Read that. But the point I'm making is this. A lack of knowledge... Listen to me, and an abundance of misinformation has plagued the church for the last 2,000 plus years about the character of God. Well, God is love, He's also a righteous judge. The Bible says that we should actually have a healthy amount of fear because He is our Creator. And he can determine our destination. You've probably heard people say something like, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Nope, you didn't read the Bible. Wait a second, but um, Christians are just so judgmental. I've been hurt in the church. They They just judged me wrongly. Well, listen, just because God's people act a fool doesn't mean that he is. Come on, you can find a healthy church and a group of believers to live and fellowship with and grow in your faith regardless of the knucklehead that tripped you up in the last place. I'm going to preach this direction today. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. So you've heard people say things like that. You've heard people, well, Jesus said, judge not. Didn't he say that? He did. But did you read the rest of the chapter? He, he did, but did you read the context? But God is love. How can a loving God uh, send people to hell? They're breaking the covenant that he's been making with us as people for our history. So there are some misconceptions about God's judgment that I want to clear up today to help you understand this is part of the character of God. And here is something really important. We've been talking about this the last several weeks I think God, by the Holy Spirit, has put this on my heart and in the teaching that we've been walking through. I want you to be biblically literate. I want you to comprehensively understand the sovereignty of God and what that means. How that helps you understand human death or illness. How that helps you understand the things that have befallen you in this life. It will change 
the way you look at God, it may even help you forgive him. That was by the Spirit of God. Misconception number one. God's judgment and his wrath are cruel. Is cruel or are cruel? Christine? Okay, I think I did it right. Is cruel. That's because I was, I was grammar checking because my wife just walked out of the room. I guess she doesn't like the message. That's because, listen, people see God's judgment and wrath as cruel. She's back. Everybody give her a round of applause. <laughs> Your neighbor will tell you. That's because, listen, the misconception that God's judgment and his wrath are cruel is because you're viewing God through the lens of human anger. You are seeing him. I'm telling you, there is something that the Holy Spirit wants to help somebody with today. You have seen God the same way that you saw your angry, drunk father. You are thinking that his wrath and judgment are cruel because you're looking at it with a lens of broken humanity in your past. And this is not true of God. He's higher and better than that. He does not judge or, or throw wrath towards someone just because he gets a kick out of it. He's doing it in every instance in Scripture. It is a case where either an individual or a group are receiving, listen to me closely, exactly what they deserve. It's great when you don't have to get what you deserve. Somebody shout hallelujah. I'm so thankful for the moment that God saved me and didn't give me what I deserved. I deserve hell and punishment, eternity without God. But God exercised grace towards me. But I'm telling you, every place in Scripture, there's not a single one that you can look at that these people, individuals or groups, are receiving more than what they deserved or less than what they deserved. They're, they're getting exactly what they deserve. God doesn't give out punishments that don't fit the crime. This is important for you to understand about the God that you serve. Oh, you slipped up in a little area of your life. Wham, you're dead. That would not be a God you'd want to serve. Or let me put it like this. That would not be a God you could serve very long because you'd be dead. Okay? That's not the testimony of scripture. The truest picture of God as a judge is that he is just. And the Bible says he is the only righteous one. So he's not doing it because he just wants to be cruel. So I want you to think about that when you have questions about why do bad things happen to good people and how could this have... Just understand our perspective needs to include things about the sovereignty of God and the full character of God, not just the feel-good stuff, but we need to understand him as a righteous judge. Misconception number two is this, that his judgment and his wrath will be inflicted on innocent and ignorant people, but this is not true. You say, well, pastor, whoa, what are you preaching about today? Hold on a second. I'm telling you, this statement right here is a misconception. People believe that God is going to inflict judgment and wrath on innocent 
people or ignorant people, and that's simply not the truth. Because Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means no one's innocent. This is the gospel. This is the hope that, yes, you're guilty as sin. You're guilty as charged. But there is a redeemer, amen, who can redeem even the worst of the worst. God gives time for repentance, and he even reveals himself, the Bible says, in the created world. In Romans chapter 1, there's an interesting statement made by Paul. He says this in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, wait a second, just so you're awake, look at me real quick. I haven't forgotten, we're going to Revelation chapter 4, okay? We'll get there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the good people and the innocent. What does this say? No, it doesn't say that. It says against those who are unrighteous and who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. This is a good portion of scripture for the the culture we're living in today. Verse 19 says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You say, how can you make that assumption? He follows through with saying this in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, especially or namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, every human, are without excuse. Yes, we want to reach them with the gospel message. Yes, we want to send missionaries to far outreaching, outlying places so that they can hear the hope of the gospel. But God's word clearly says the beauty of creation testifies to the existence of God. And that alone is a witness for them to have knowledge of who he is and to reach out for him. So no one is innocent. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give people what they choose in all of its implications. I I need you to, I want, I, I think God wants you to really understand this today. That the essence of his actions in wrath are to give you or anyone, exactly what they choose in all of its implications. Nothing more and equally nothing less. So you chose to reject God and you're going to experience the punishment that comes along with that. You chose to accept him and walk with him. You're going to experience the reward and that's amazing. So if you've ever heard something about the free will or human choice, let me say to you like this. God's readiness to honor your choice to this extent probably worries you. (laughs) But he is willing to honor your choice. He created you with a free will. But his attitude is supremely just in all of this. He is absolutely righteous. And this is worlds apart from inflicting pain just because you get a giggle out of it. He is honoring who he is and honoring what we've decided. 
So he's not cruel, he's righteous. With that as our backdrop, so that you understand the lawsuit and the way that that just kind of helps us get into Revelation better, God is the sovereign judge of the universe and he renders ultimate divine justice by condemning and punishing the wicked. This is a, a good, simple statement. And vindicating and rewarding the righteous or the saints. He is sovereign in all that he does. And as he does exercise justice and judgment, he condemns and punishes the wicked and he vindicates and rewards the saints. The book of Revelation is intended to encourage the Christians then, as well as you today in this room, to understand and to not surrender to the culture around you, regardless of where you are in this world, whether you're here or in a foreign nation, or even to accommodate those cultural pushbacks that we get, but to stand strong for your faith and to live holy and to please God. You said, Pastor, I thought you said you don't talk politics. Listen, the world is literally going somewhere in a handbasket and it's, it, it's not getting any prettier these days. And the culture is pushing in on the church because the church is either lukewarm or dead. You might need to shut that camera off. I don't know. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church you came from, okay? It's either lukewarm or dead, and that's why culture is pushing in. There are people who are standing on platforms in holy attire, looking like a priest of God, even today, talking about things that are improper and saying that God has approved of them and he hasn't. So we have to understand that the book of Revelation is intended as an encouragement to the Christians in every one of those seven churches, as well as every one of the seven million, billion, trillion churches that have lived and been around since those days to live holy regardless of the culture you find yourself in. There's something unique that I wanted to draw your attention to and talk a little bit about, which is the divine lawsuit but something unique inside of that is the divine counsel. And we'll talk a little bit about this today, and then you'll have a ton of questions. And I hope that you become a student of God's word as a result of some of this intriguing material. Psalm 82, verse 1, I want you to read that on the screen. It'll say this, God has taken his place in the divine counsel. This is a very strange thing to read. You might say, well, pastor, that's just your version. Nope, you can check a lot of them. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The divine council is composed of lesser divine created beings. I want you to really hear me when I say this. I'm going to have to repeat it several times today because it's too far in the message and you need more caffeine. There are lesser beings... That, are, that have been created by God to assist him in making decisions. You say, well, pastor, he doesn't need any help making decisions. No, but he chose to create. And he has these lesser divine beings in this council. I want you to understand he remains head of the council. There can never be a coup in this council. Okay? 
And I want you to understand he's remained or retained all authority. He is sovereign over them and will disregard what they say if he doesn't like it. They are not to be worshipped. They are not angels. They're never given names to us. We'll meet them someday. But I'm telling you this because there's something that keeps on happening in Scripture all the way from Genesis chapter 6 all the way into Revelation that involves this feature that you might not have ever heard of or thought about. The unseen realm is part of Revelation, and we get a few sneak peeks behind the curtain to see. But they attend to God. They make sure his will is completed. And in other places in Scripture, I hope you've got your spiritual ears, if not just your human ones listening. In other places, they are mentioned as the great assembly or the assembly and the heavenly host. Does anybody in here remember the Christmas story about shepherds watching their sheep by night and an angel came and suddenly there was with the angel the heavenly host praising God and saying, we, you thought that this was, okay, a thousand angels showed up to join whoever that main angel was. I'm telling you, if you dig into the original understanding of scripture and into the language, you will see these are not angels. This is incredible. It's eye-opening because there's something important for you to see. Someday, you and I will become members in the family of God for eternity in a spiritual yet physical place. And the Bible says, regardless of what you thought about God as a judge or that Christians shouldn't judge, the apostle tells you in scripture that you will judge angels and other beings. You, as a believer, will have responsibility in the coming kingdom. I know some of you just have your mind blown. Let's look at the Bible because I'm going to help you with some really cool things today. Let me give you a crystal clear example besides Psalm 82 verse 1. God is sitting in the council and you're like, how is there's what? There are other beings. Okay, go to 1 Kings chapter 22. I'm going to give you a little summary about this. And we actually have a son and a grandson, not my wife and I, but our church, have a son and a grandson named Micaiah. And it is a Bible name. There is a really awesome, righteous prophet in the Bible that we're about to read about whose name is Micaiah. It's in 1 Kings chapter 22. So something really interesting happens. King Ahab, we just talked about him with Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. She's here, he's here. King Ahab gathers 400 prophets and he asks this question. He says, should I go down to this place called Ramoth Gilead and do battle or should I just stay home? In those days, they consulted the prophets as the kings and the priests were connected very closely. They consulted and all 400 prophets, 400, show up to King Ahab and say, yes, you're going to triumph. The Lord's got this. He's going to give that city to your hand. Verse 8 says that King Jehoshaphat, which is the king of Judah, and King Ahab, the king of Israel, they're standing there together, and he convinces Ahab to get one more vote. He says, there's this other prophet, we really should consult him, his name's Micaiah, and King Ahab gets so angry, 
And he says, no, that guy never says a good word about me. Every time I've ever talked to him, it's doom and gloom. I don't want to hear what that guy says. But Jehoshaphat convinces him. And look at what verse 19 says. Micaiah begins to speak in the presence of the king. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, the divine council, standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit, one of the host of heaven, one of the divine council members steps forward, stands before the Lord and says, I'll do it. I'll entice him. Verse 22. And the Lord said to him, well, by what means would you do that? He says, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, fine, you are to entice him and you'll succeed. Go out and do it. Any of you freaked out right now? This is wild imagery that happens, right, in the Bible. Verse 23, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of your prophets. This is Micaiah talking to the king now. The Lord has declared you're about to die. This is, this is wild. So it's... God has already as sovereign decided this wicked king Ahab is going to die. But he decides to convene his council. And he says, how should we do it? And one saying one thing. And, oh, I can do this. What about this? And how about that? And then one steps forward and says, I got the, the best idea. I think I'll go down and be a lying spirit. And I can convince all those prophets to prophesy and get him convinced. So he goes down there and gets killed. And God says, okay. Have it your way. Let's do it. This is pretty wild. The decision that he is going to get killed has already been decided by God. But the issue gets discussed in the divine council. Let me say again. The divine council, put this back up on the screen, are lesser created beings who serve and assist the only uncreated most high God. Amen? Heaven is going to be so much cooler than you being a cherub on a floating cloud. Okay? That's what I've been trying to tell you. There's some awesome stuff about heaven and the fact that it's not going to just be some spiritual place. It's going to be a physical place. Here we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible says. So let me say this to you very clearly. And they have this on the screen in just a second. The divine council members are not equal to God. They are not to be worshipped by us as humans. They are not angels. <laughs> and we are not polytheists. Okay? These are the basic questions out of the hundred that filled your mind in the last 20 minutes. These are the basic answers to those questions. Okay? There is only one God who is worthy to be worshipped. He has eternally existed, has always been, will always be, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. The reason why I talk about this, divine counsel, is to excite your study of the Bible. Those weird parts are not to be skipped. 
Go home today and read Deuteronomy 32. Read Genesis chapter 6. Read Psalm 82. Read Isaiah, Jeremiah, those references that we had on the screen. Malachi, the entire book. You will find some really interesting things that you never knew were even there. And the point is, become a student of God's word. If you haven't become one already. John sees what is happening in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. He says this, After I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. Again, we talked about this last week. Being basically transitioned from a merely physical realm to an out-of-body sort of experience in the spirit. And he says, And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he sat there having the appearance of these precious jewels, and he names them. And he says, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Do you remember why God set the rainbow in the sky? There's some really amazing things that John is witnessing in the throne room of God. And it says in verse 4, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. Have you ever wondered who those elders are? Just raise your hand. Yeah? Okay. I have too. Scholars have thought about this. They've discussed it. Many of them uh, have come to the conclusion that 24 can be divided into two twelves. Follow this. 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And how many apostles? 12. And if you say, what about Judas? He had a replacement. I don't think Judas is one of those that's sitting on a throne, unfortunately, but... He had a replacement whose name was Matthias. If you read Acts chapter 1, they chose another who is going to be an apostle, disciple, and follow after Jesus. So some scholars think that these are 24 humans, the original founders of the tribes of of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles. Whoever they are, they're seated in the throne room of heaven with God, And they may very well be those 24 people that we talked about that have been promoted to positions on the divine council. But here's the important part, what comes next. It says that in humility, every time they look upon him, they take their crown and they cast it down before the throne of the only one worthy to be seated on that main throne. And here's what they say. Worthy is the Lamb of God. He is worthy. Only, the only one who's worthy. And then they actually repeat it. And if I'm to understand what John wrote about what he saw, he wasn't seeing one moment just in the future. I actually tend to believe this is being repeated right now in heaven. That there are those who are worshiping the Lord those family members of yours that you've lost that knew Jesus are up in heaven worshiping in his presence. That's amazing when you think about the hope 
that we have, that we can be in the presence of God for eternity. Would you stand with me today? If you're new to Celebrate Church, we, we do something. We don't have weird messages like this every week, so please come back. Okay. <clears throat> but we do something regular on, on the regular at the end of every one of our services. And we just say this simple prayer, and it is this, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I really believe, and, and I don't have, and I'll tell you this, we could talk about the gifts in the Bible some other day. I know for certain I have not been given the gift of prophecy, but I do know that the Holy Spirit puts things in my heart sometimes to say just on the spur of the moment. And I believe some of those things strike chords in the hearts of the humans who hear them. I don't know what hits you today. I don't know if you're far away from God and need to do what one of those churches was instructed to do and say, come back. I don't know if that's you. I don't know if none of this really, like this was interesting to you, but none of it is really something that you're worried about. And today you're, you're just like, but I'm really struggling with my concern for my friend, my neighbor, my son, my unsaved relative, my coworker, my marriage, my job situation, my child, my grandchild. Maybe that's it. So when you pray this prayer, I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. And that's not weird or hokey. We really do believe that God still speaks, not just through his word, but it's always backed up by his word, amen? But he wants to speak to you. He loves you enough to talk with you today. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Prayer team members, would you go ahead and slip out and get to your positions? Keep your eyes closed up at the front on the sides of the stage we have prayer team members who are here and available to pray for you for whatever needs you have if you need to come back to Jesus today today is the day to do that and say I'm committing myself again he's he's had a lawsuit against me and the charges are correct but I'm asking him today to forgive me or it's something else entirely and you need help and you just want somebody to pray for you. Pray this prayer right now with me, just quietly at your seat. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, I'm confident that you are speaking to people all throughout this room and those who hear this message later. I pray that you would speak loud and clear like a trumpet. And Lord, that you would help us. God, we want to receive the encouragement of your word. We want to know all the things that have to do with the stuff in heaven and the future and revelation. But God, there may be things that are hurting us in the here and now that we need prayer for.